0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk live in the Washington, D.C. area Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio.
1: and complete please stand by now downloading tech talk radio with dr richard shirts and jim russ tech talk radio it's technology you can understand and now here
0: are dr richard shirts and jim russ
2: welcome to tech talk radio we are in the virtual faculty lounge at stratford university talking technology i'm dr richard shirts and i'm jim russ and it's been another week of shutdown and being in your home alone.
1: <laughs> Being in your home alone. <laughs>
2: Being in your home alone. I don't that's think right. You've you know, been,
1: you're not alone.
2: No, not really. I'm down at the Bay House, looking out over the uh, Indian Creek now. Uh-huh. So it's been a nice, uh, been a nice time down here. Very that's pleasant. Cool. Uh-huh. But still, I'm in isolation.
1: Yes, it, it, every day seems like this, the uh, the day before.
2: It's so you know, people are. Get up and- I
1: was just playing a little. It's Groundhog Day for you there.
2: Oh, it is Groundhog Day. You know there have been rumors that as people stay home and work remotely, uh-huh. that their personal hygiene has been going down the toilet. Uh-huh. Down the toilet. They, nice. they have. They well have been managing. They've been looking at sales. It turns out that sales of alcohol and soap are up. Uh huh. But the sales for shampoo. And deodorant have d- just dropped through the bottom. Bottom. Oh, they're not no. selling that much. So they're thinking that it's becoming a stinky workplace as people <laughs> go remote longer and longer.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: that's what's uh, that's what's going to happen. Well, today we we got a lot of things going on. Zoom has finally fixed their six uh, their a lot of their security issues. You know, three hundred three hundred million people a day use Zoom. That's crazy. And uh, yeah. And Hubble Space Telescope had its 30th birthday, Uh and they released some fantastic images, really nice. China has released a new national blockchain, and they're going to use that for all um, Internet transactions. It's quite a great technological feat. Now, today we're going to talk—
1: It is China.
2: It is China. Yeah, I I think we're going to want to have our competing blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. Now we're also going to talk about the woman who in 1964 discovered the corona viruses. She mm-hmm. ran an electron microscope and she did not get much, uh, much credit for it. Now this week we're also going to feature on Profile NIT IT Stephen Wolfram. He's a physicist who started Wolfram Research, the creator of Mathematica, and the Wolfram Alpha answer engine. And this guy's a brilliant physicist, and he's got now the physics project, which I'm going to explain a little bit further. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got a letter from Arnie in Colorado Springs. He's a longtime listener. Hi, Dr. Schertz. Let's talk about 5G for a moment. How many devices will work? Or not work with 5G? Uh, what about the current iPhone, iPad, router, laptop, Xenity TV? Uh, we, you know, they uh, said in, in uh, Colorado Springs they do not have Verizon Fios. Mm-hmm. Will, the, will the new iPhone SE support 5G? And is 5G going to be even viable for most people? Is When's it going to be rolled out in the cities? Thanks for such an informative and interesting show, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie... 5G, of course, is the successor to 4G, fourth generation, or LTE. Now, it should be about 15 to 50% faster than 4G in the real world because it depends on the number of users and the distance from the cell tower, but it will be faster. Now, 5G just, though, isn't about speed only. You will be able to watch a 4K Netflix uh, with your cell phone uh, on the way home. It's also about capacity. You'll be able to get a stronger signal in crowded areas, which is really important. Like if you want to make a phone call in a crowded sports stadium or at a music festival. Now, 5G uses more spectrum than the fourth generation. That's why there's more bandwidth. And that additional spectrum is thanks to the FPC. That they actually reutilized uh, frequency bands that were underutilized. and they auctioned them off to the telecom companies. Now, you can expect 5G to be rolling out extensively over the next couple of years. They're all advertising it now, but it is really expensive to roll out that technology, and it's going to be rolling out you know, in waves over the next couple of years. Now, right now, not, many, not very very many handsets support 5G. You've got a couple of two or three handsets from Samsung. You've got an LG handset, and you've got a OnePlus handset. Now, the next generation Androids uh, will all support 5G, the next generation. Apple devices should support it. None of the current iPhone technology supports 5G. Now, the new iPhone SE, which is just a repackaging of current iPhone tech, it's, it basically it's an iPhone 11 stuck in an iPhone 8 case. <laughs> that that will not support 5G. But Apple is rumored uh, to have the iPhone 12 to support. 5g but uh so i'd say your next uh you know you should probably at this point wait to get a uh wait to get a 5g phone i tell you the first 5g phones that were released they ran hot because they were trying to connect with all of these frequency bands it's like you mean temperature wise temperature wise yeah they were they were running uh because they, they're basically connecting to, to three or four different bands mm-hmm. uh, to try to uh, get that throughput. And they were running extremely hot. Now, they've made the chips better. So each successive release is getting better and better. So that's basically why Apple decided not to support 5G with their current technology. Uh-huh. They didn't think it was ready to go. How about so when, I, is
1: the, when is the Apple 12 supposed to come out?
2: It's going to come out within the next few months, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a, it's rumored that it will support five G because Does it mean Apple doesn't. Get one? No, I've got Apple Eleven. I know you, you know, do. know, I, I I decided uh, I could have waited for the twelve, but I decided to tell you the truth. Five G is just not that imp- important to me. I I don't actually watch movies on my iPhone mm-hmm. that much, so I don't think I I don't think five G would make that much difference yep. to me. So I decided I'll just get I'll just get the uh, iPhone Eleven and then. By the time I get a new iPhone, 5G technology will be mature, and I think we'll have very good support for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good email, Orin. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. He's another he's another physicist, uh, longtime listener. Dear Doc and Jim, and the true star of the show, Mr. Big Voice. Uh-oh. Now, Doc, yeah, he, he likes Mr. Big Voice. Uh-huh. Uh, Are I don't you know. sure? I'm not really Mr. sure. Mr.
1: Big Voice is walking into the studio. He I think he has something to say if you if you allow him a, a sidebar here.
3: Okay, Bob? yeah. Bob, are you mocking me? Remember, <laughs> I know where you live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I said some sarcasm in Bob's the yeah? way Bob's typing.
2: Yeah, well, I think I think Bob actually likes Mr. Big Voice. Oh,
1: uh, I, even, he has to have even, some
2: fans, right? Even though Mr. Big Voice mocks Canada too often.
1: He does. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Now, what Bob wrote today. to me... He wrote to me about an article that was published in 2012 about computers that are powered by swarms of crabs. <laughs> now... He said, it's a bit offbeat, but it's kind of interesting. (laughs) This is all from Maryland. Well, I went back and read this, and it turned out that they noticed that when there would be a swarm of crabs, they sort of communicate to their next neighbor, and then collectively the swarm behaves like it's making a computerized decision. And they could actually have openings that would would go from one uh, room to the next, and the crabs would coordinate – who would go through which opening, <laughs> and they would act like either an AND gate or an OR gate for a computer. And so they they actually, they actually modeled this thing, and then this uh, this researcher took a swarm of forty crabs, put them in that configuration, and sure enough, they model an AND gate or an OR gate or an OR gate. But I tell you, that would be a pretty inefficient computer <laughs> if every if yeah. every transistor location. Was basically if every uh, was was had to be operated uh, by, by, with, by by forty crabs. It's yeah,
1: a good thing that we don't have crab-powered cell phones too.
2: I know, They'd but but big. that does yeah that would be boy would be hard to be mm-hmm. hard to carry that around. Yeah. So this what this does this actually shows that a lot of organisms communicate with one another and you get complex behavior out of very simple communication patterns and so they've noticed this in animals they've they've noticed say when fish are swimming they'll they'll get in a very sophisticated um, uh, configuration that makes a lot of little fish look like a big fish and they do that just by communicating with each other locally and then collectively they have this really complicated you know algorithm that they're following that kind of behavior is seen across the animal world everywhere and it sort of relates to what we'll be talking about with Stephen Wolfram today on cellular automata. Okay, we got an email. Yes?
1: If you had a crab-powered cell phone, you might not want to put it in your pocket.
2: No. That would be a bad idea. That would be an extremely bad idea. (laughs) That's right. Well, we got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an old printer that does not support Wi-Fi. I'd like to share the printer over the wireless network. Is there a way to... Convert my printer to Wi-Fi. Enjoy the podcast, Peter and Fairfax. Well, um, Peter, I tell you, I love Wi-Fi printers because you can print stuff from your cell phone. You can print it from your computer. You don't have to run that USB cable to your, uh, to your, um, to your computer. And, uh, and all of a sudden, a single device supports multiple computers. Well, you can do this by using a wireless print server. So you can buy that device, and it plugs into the uh, in, into the uh, input connection of your printer. And then what you do is you just buy wire the, the wireless print server. You plug it into the back of your printer, and then you connect the print server to the network by you know you log into it, you give it the Wi-Fi address, and once it's on your Wi-Fi network, your printer is acting like a Wi-Fi printer. It just it's almost immediately done, and then. You can, uh, you can print from your cell phone or from your computer. It's an easy fix. Uh, and there are many, many uh, uh, print servers, uh, USB print servers on Amazon. They, ver- they vary from $40. I saw one for $90. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, all, they're, 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 they're all over the place. Now, I would suggest that make certain that the print server supports AirPrint. If it supports AirPrint, you can print from your iPhone directly. And that that is I use that feature a lot. I've got a printer at home. It's a newer printer. It's got Wi-Fi built in, but it supports AirPrint, yeah. and I get I can just print directly from my iPhone anytime I want. It makes life easy.
1: You know, I was just looking at this because I don't have a printer at home because generally I don't need one. But now in the coronavirus era, uh, it would be nice to have a printer. I just found a Canon on the website uh, for forty-five bucks. I mean, you can get a wireless printer pretty cheap. I guess I guess that's an okay brand.
2: Yeah, I mean, what they sell you the printer for forty-five bucks, and then they sell you the ink cartridges for thirty-five bucks, <laughs> and 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 you have to put a new a new ink cartridge in every uh, thirty days. So uh, what happens? What they've done is they have made the cost of the printers ultra cheap, mm-hmm. and they make it so you cannot refill the ink cartridges, and you have to get genuine ink cartridges. They test some sort of digital signature. Perfect. And then they make make it up on Print cartridges. So if you're going to do just a little bit of printing, it doesn't matter. Just get a cheap printer and See, just that's an what expensive. I would do. not need that yeah, much. Yeah. Then if you if you're not going to have a big volume, then you that's okay. I've got a Canon printer at home that I love. It was probably not that expensive, but I'm telling you, about every six weeks, it says I'm running low on ink. And, you know, so uh-huh. it, it goes through it goes through ink pretty fast. So you you want to look at the cost per page, and so they'll give you an estimate on how many pages you can get. In each print cartridge, ah. and then and then you can calculate cost per page. And, that's
1: that's and, that's great. I had no idea about that. That's interesting.
2: And so there and there are dramatic differences in the cost per page. Like you, if you get a uh, say a, a laser, like a like a uh, one that's based on Xerox technology, one so-called laser printers, uh, you can uh, those uh, cost per page is much lower, but the cost of the printer is much higher. So it's a trade-off. So it's not a simple decision to make, but, uh, but you know, you've got plenty of time now sitting at home, Jim, to, uh, you know, to, to to, (laughs) to work at
1: home by myself, (laughs) as you would say, by myself,
2: we got an email, we got an email from Stu in Kilmarnock, dear tech talk. We've got a DSL internet connection. It was pretty good when they first installed it, but now it's been terrible for the last year. I need a higher speed because our family does a lot of video streaming. Now, I've been seeing commercials about HughesNet satellite uh, internet, and they say they've got unlimited data with no hard data limits. What exactly do they mean? It's really confusing, Stu and Kilmarnock. Well, Stu, the unlimited data part means just that. As long as you're subscribed to HughesNet data plan, you can use all the data you want every month without worrying about your internet access being cut off. If you exceed a predetermined data cap, however, their FAQ page says, if your download speed, that your download speed drops from 25 megabits per second to one to three megabits per second, if you reach the data threshold that's defined by your chosen plan. In other words, it just goes, it's slow as molasses once you hit that Mm -hmm. data cap. So uh, if you decide to sign up for HughesNet, you can choose from several plans range from 50 gigabytes per month to um, five to from 10 gigabytes per month to 50 gigabytes per month. And then also, if you run out of uh, of your data cap one month, you can buy what they call a data token. And that will give you, you know, for nine dollars, you get a, you get an additional three megabytes to, for the month. But so you need so you just need to figure out. Uh, Uh, Stu, um, how much data your family uses, and go with that. I know a lot of people down in this rural Virginia area, they use satellite because it's frequently hard to get uh, wired internet access back to all the houses. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, my friend recently forgot their password and was locked out of their Facebook account, and Facebook will not help them gain access. Is there anything I can do... To ensure that this will not happen to me, Alice in Alexandria. Well, here's what happened to your friend. They did not have a good backup email account. You know how you, yes. if you have to reset your password, they'll send you an email, mm-hmm. or if you're on your mobile phone, they'll send you, uh, send you to your um, um, to the phone number on the phone. Well, if for some reason. You change carriers and you got a different carrier, you got a different email account and your old email account, you know, becomes defunct. So you can't get into it anymore because you don't have it. Or suppose you change your phone number if you're using everything on mobile and then you try to reset your account and they cannot send the reset message either by text message or by email. You're stuck. They will not uh, do anything. And you'll just have to get a new email account. So that's probably what happened to your friend, Alice. Now, the reason that Facebook does this is that that is the oldest trick in the book, calling up Facebook and saying, look, you know, I lost my cell phone. I lost my email account. Can you reset it for me anyway? And there were thousands of Facebook accounts hacked through that um, social engineering so Facebook made the executive decision that it's better to lock a few people out of their accounts than it is to let thousands of accounts be hacked. So that's why they do it. I I actually kind of agree with that. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. If you want to make certain that you're not locked out of your account, first of all, make certain that you always have a good backup email registered with the uh, with Facebook so they can email you a reset email and make certain that if you're working your mobile phone, make certain that you always maintain that phone number. And if you change it, make certain that it's registered with the Facebook account. Now, Facebook does have one method. If you cannot reset it by either email or text message, they have what they called trusted friends, trusted friends. And, And what a trusted, it's a trusted contact. And you can have from three to five trusted contacts. So suppose that for some reason you lost your, all your email, your email account was dead. Your phone wasn't your, you couldn't get a text message, but you had trusted contacts listed on your account. You can actually call them up and tell them, look, I've, I've lost this email account. I'm trying to reset my password And, uh, and then Facebook will contact your trusted contacts, maybe a couple of them. And if those trusted contacts validate the fact that you called them and said, I can't get into my Facebook account, they will reset it. Now, here's the thing. You've got to put in the trusted contacts before you're (laughs) locked out of your account. Exactly. And also only get trusted contacts because you see. These trusted contacts could conspire to steal your account. Mm-hmm. They could, I mean, they could go and they could set reset password, can't, can't, uh, can't connect. And they, and then all of a sudden, Facebook calls the trusted contacts. They say, oh, yeah, they want to reset it. And then they reset it. And so, um, so if you're going to get a trusted contact, make certain that you can really trust them. Very important. Dear Doc and Jim, we got an email from Lily in Fairfax. How can I hide sensitive notifications from my iPhone lock screen? I don't like it when all these notifications come popping up, like text messages and emails and everything else, because I don't want people looking at looking at what's coming in my phone when I'm not there. Sensitive
1: notifications. Mm.
2: Sensitive notifications. Enjoy the show, Lily and Fairfax. Well, your iPhone does give you a lot of control over notifications. So you can designate certain apps as sensitive, so it hides yeah. the content while your phone is locked. Only let you see the full preview when you use touch ID or face ID to unlock your iPhone. It works on every single app on your phone. Now, if you want to just do this for all the apps, you can go to settings and the notifications. And then when you, when you bring up the notifications page, you say tap on show previews at the top of the screen. And you can set the option to show it when unlocked. Uh, and then everything will be hidden uh, 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 there will be no notifications if your phone is locked. You could also say never, or you could say always. And so if the notifications are coming up all the time, then it's probably set for always. So I would just set that option for when unlocked, and then bingo, it will it will be that way. Now, if there's one of the applications that you would like to have the notifications come through automatically, then you can simply scroll down to that actual application, open up. Open it up, and then you can click on Show Previews. And for that one application, you can set it to always, and then those notifications will come right through. Thanks. That was a very good question, Lily. Uh, listen, we love your emails. We do. E- email us at Stratford at dot. Uh, at email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can
1: it's saturday morning you're listening to tech talk radio heard on federal news network 1500 a.m 1035 fm hd2 1039 fm hd2 and on the web at uh, federalnewsnetwork.com learn about all the programs at stratford university by going to stratford.edu
2: He's a computer scientist and theoretical physicist, best known as founder of Wolfram Research, the creator of Mathematica and the Wolfram Alpha Answer Engine. Now, this guy is quite a, a child prodigy. He was born in London in August 29, 1959, to Hugo and Sybil Wolfram. Both were Jewish refugees from the United Kingdom, to the United Kingdom. At age 12... He wrote a directory of physics. He went through all the physics books, and he compiled a directory of the field of physics. I was looking through that. It was 111 pages long, and it it was nicely formatted. It almost looked like the current Wolfram Alpha answer machine, the way the data was formatted. So he wrote that at age 12. And he just started studying physics. He was fascinated with particle physics in particular. By 14, he had written three books <laughs> on particle physics. Wow. Can you imagine that? He, no, by 14, I've
1: yet to ri- write my first, so yeah.
2: Yeah. By 14, he he'd written three books on particle physics. He's pr- quite a prodigious, uh, quite a fast writer. By 15, he began doing research in the field of applied quantum theory, which was also related to the subject of his first three books on particle physics. And he started publishing scientific papers. Actually, by the time he was 17, he'd published 10 scientific research papers in particle physics, and they were published in refereed journals. So he went off to Eaton College when he was 17. Now, this is after he'd already written three books <laughs> and published 10 articles. <laughs> And he and he was started taking classes there at Eton, and uh, which was there at and uh, but he left, actually. And then he went from to Eton, and then he entered St John's College at Oxford at, at seventeen. And what he said was, he said the lectures were awful; he couldn't stand it. So in 1978, he left uh, Oxford without graduating, and migrated to Caltech. And he there, and he, and he said, I was, I was reading kind of his bio there on the physics, uh, physics project page, and uh, he, he said he was publishing a scientific paper about one a month while he was there at Caltech. And so finally, uh, the, um, the um, graduate professors, they said, look, Steve, why don't you just get your PhD? So he bundled <laughs> up about 10 of his papers— and made that like a dissertation. Mm-hmm. And they questioned him on these research papers that had already been published. And at age 20, he got his PhD from Caltech.
1: Pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, at age 20, you know, he just sort of skipped three, sort of skipped over a few steps. Uh huh. Now, following the award of his PhD, he joined the faculty at Caltech. And uh, his his mentor was Richard Feynman, one of the pioneers in in particle physics. And he became the youngest recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship in 1981 at age 21. Mm. Now, he was there for a while until 1983. Then he moved to Princeton to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. This was in 83. And he had a—this is where Einstein was, by the way— And he had an office that was not too far from where Einstein's former office. And he conducted research into cellular automata using mainly computer simulations. He actually got tired of particle physics because it was well-developed theory. And then people were just cranking out computer models, predicting this, predicting that. And he felt that it was stifling his creativity, being so pigeonholed, just calculating to another decimal point an existing theory. He wanted to do something completely different. And he felt that uh, cellular automata could be, could be the key to that. That's where you uh, define relationships with very simple rules. And then you just apply those rules over and over and over and over again. And, uh, and then you can go from a very simple situation to a very complex situation. And so he started studying complexity. Uh, using cellular automata now in 1980 Wolfram worked on simulations of physical processes using cellular automata so for, he was for instance he was calculating turbulent fluid flow which is very complicated to do but he did it instead of using uh fluid dynamics he 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 just took each molecule into the relationship between each molecule and he took defined that relationship in a very simple way. And then he just ran that simulation millions of times. And he eventually developed behavior that you would expect to have in fluids. and uh, And so this helped him initiate the whole field of complex systems. Because you see, if you take a fluid, it looks like it's continuous. But actually it's made up of molecules. So it's actually individual molecules are interacting with each other. So it's not really continuous. And so he was able to take that kind of approach to calculating complex physical processes. So in 1986, because he got really interested in this field, he, he founded the center for complex systems research at the university of Illinois. And then in 1987, he started the scientific journal named complex systems. Now, while he was at uh, Caltech back in the 79 to 81, he developed a computer algebraic system called SMP, some symbolic manipulation program. And that was a way to allow physicists to more easily make these complex calculations that show up in relativity or in quantum mechanics. And, uh, he left Caltech, actually, when there was some question over who owned, who owned the intellectual property rights to that language. So he left there. And then, uh, and then he went on to, you know, as I said, to go to, the, to, go to Princeton and, and develop rules and classification systems for cellular automaton. Now, in Wolfram's mind, and this, this goes back all the way to the early 80s. He believes that cellular that the results of cellular automata that running on a computer could unlock deep truths about the universe itself. So this had been his dream to sort of use that insight to uh, come up with the fundamental rules that physicists have discovered over the last couple hundred years. And. So he's uh, really, really interested in that. He he ended up uh, uh, when he, while he was at the Center for Complex Research Systems, uh, he started to develop a computer algebra system called Mathematica. This is this was a, a carry-on of his symbolic mani- manipulation program that he's doing at Caltech. So he developed Mathematica, and that. Uh, That particular algebraic system was released in 1988. At that point, he decided to make a little money with it. So he quit uh, the Center for Complex Research Systems, and he founded Wolfram Research to specifically develop and market Mathematica. And that has been an extremely successful program. It's allowed physicists to do things that otherwise they would not be able to do so easily. It was a uh, really a computational tool that, uh, that automated a lot of the kind of calculations that you have to do in physical systems. Now, between uh, 1992 and 2002, he worked on a controversial book called A New Kind of Science, which presents the empirical study of simple computational systems. This is back on the same theme of cellular automata. His conclusion... And this is what he this was what he posited in that book, a new kind of science, is that the universe is digital in nature, and it runs on fundamental laws that can be described as simple programs, and that we could derive all of the properties of space just by running through these simple rules. Uh, he he and he he gave some simple examples of it, but he didn't really really um, really. Developed that to the full breadth of insight until recently, in March of 2009, Wolfram announced Wolfram Alpha, an answer engine. Now, this engine is based on natural language processing. has a large uh, It has a large library of algorithms, and say, um, you know, Apple Siri uses the uh, uses the answer engine. Microsoft Bing uses the answer engine when you when you make queries. So it's it's quite a powerful Quite a powerful tool and he 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 licenses that he licenses that answer engine to companies who want to use it for for research or data analysis and there's a free version of it that just the general public can use that's a little bit simplified in 2014 uh he announced the uh development of the wolfram language which is a new general multi-paradigm programming language and actually it really wasn't new it just had a new name. It was the underlying programming language from Mathematica. And he just decided to pull it out, define its syntax and make it a standalone language, which he did in March of 2014. Now in April of 2020, Wolfram announced the Wolfram physics project, which was an effort to reduce and explain all the laws of physics within a paradigm of a hypergraph. And, um, the hypergraph is really a way to view space as discrete points. Um, And I think the sort of the key insight here, just as say fluids, which are flowing are really not continuous because they're made up of molecules. He contends that space is not continuous, but it's made up of individual discrete points, but they're so close together that it looks contiguous to us. And that key insight is what allows him later on to have one theory that will embrace both quantum mechanics as well as general relativity. And that's, that's a key insight. And, and we have all of our physical laws up to this point have viewed space as continuous. He also uses uh, ordered graph system within this To give you geometrical interpretations like for space-time or for quantum mechanics i'll i'll explain a little bit of that later in the show no i'm not going to go too deep into it but it is fascinating fascinating what he's been able to infer from this simple view of the universe now physicists have highly criticized wolfram because he's working outside of the normal journal method now he's publishing he's self-publishing stuff He's not subjecting his most recent work like on the physics project to uh to peer review. He's trying to get physicists to work with him on it and he's trying to set up an alternate universe in physics research. So there's he's received a lot of cri- criticism for that but he's I think always been a loner. And I mean even he so was, was okay I was the logic-
1: quarantine thing then.
2: Yeah, he in fact he <laughs> in fact what he said He said, this is the best time, this quarantine is the best time to do do work like that. I mean, he was saying, you know, like even uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who developed the laws of gravity and the laws of motion, he had his most significant insights when he was holed up in his house during the plague, which, Hmm. which was killing everybody. So in the early 1800s, Newton was in isolation, in quarantine, in his home, and that's when he developed some of the, some of his best physical theories. He also invented invented calculus uh, at while he was home in isolation for the plague. So so Stephen said, "Look, this isolation we've got with this coronavirus may be a good thing for physics research." So he actually doesn't mind it. Now, Wolfram tracks everything. He's got an extensive log of. Every email of how many emails he received, how many sent, he tracks how many keystrokes he's made, how many meetings and events he's attended, (laughs) phone calls, even physical movements and even movements of his mouse. So he knows how many miles he's moved his mouse. He tracks it all. He's done it back to the 1980s. And he does this with, uh, you know, with uh, all these computational tools that he has to track his data.
1: I think I understand why he's by himself. (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's good. Yeah, well, he's, I, I can, yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a bit of a loner. A he uh, sounds
1: like he's a bit neurotic, <clears throat> too.
2: It is interesting. though. I've, I've been watching a lot of his videos. It's, he's a fascinating man. Now, since 2018, he's been producing a podcast where he discusses topics ranging from the history of science to the future of civilization. So there you go, everything you want to know about the remarkable career of Stephen Wolfram.
1: So let me ask you something. While you've been in quarantine by yourself— have you done any deep thinking or invented anything?
2: No, not, but I've <laughs> I've been reading, I've been reading the physics project, actually. Okay, and, that uh, counts. It is fascinating. It is fascinating. I'll, I'm going to continue doing that.
1: Good. All right. Saturday morning, you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, uh-huh. 1035 FMHD 2, 1039 FM 2. Hope you're paying attention because we're going to quiz your knowledge coming up here with a pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio. Stand by. More of the show coming up. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
3: featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz.
2: Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please sit down, our Zoom audience is going wild. We can't really tell
1: if they're sitting down because they're a
2: virtual audience. I know. They sound like they're standing to me. They very well could be. I think it was a standing ovation, Jim. That's what I think you're right. Now this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways, and that means that we're going to assess whether our audience has been doing their work. Yeah. By listening, and we're going to give a pop quiz. Now earlier in the show, I was talking about Stephen Wolfram. Of course, he's the uh, he's the founder of Wolfram Research, the creator of Mathematica. Now, when he was 14, Stephen had written three books. In what particular area were those three books written in?
3: Okay. If you know the answer to today's question, this is your cue to pick up your device and give us a call. Yes, you. Now, if you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from East of Playa Del Church, Virginia, it's 877 936 9333. If you're powered by crabs in Canada, call us on the wildcard line 877 936 9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line. It's disinfected daily 877 936 Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz.
2: That's you. Yes. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the woman who discovered the coronaviruses back in 1964. Now, her name was June Almeida. Now, she was an electron microscope operator for the Ontario Cancer Institute. She was actually born in Scotland, and she migrated to to Canada. And she developed new techniques for using the electron microscope. This was just about the time it was being used for biological research. I see an electron microscope, when you want to look at something very, very small, smaller than the wavelength of light, you can't use light because its wavelength is too long. So you have to go to something else. So they blast electrons at the specimen and electrons, if you treat them as a wave, have a very short wavelength. And so you can get a very high resolution image, you know, of of, of an individual atom or an individual molecule. But the problem is you got to know how to interpret the image and there was quite a bit of work on how to do this thing and she she developed some very interesting techniques for looking at viruses because you you can't have the electron beam to you know de- destroy the virus so you have to you have to you have to find a way to get the electrons to scatter off the virus so she solved the problem that she could take antibodies taken from a previously infected person so if she's looking at virus A, she would find somebody who had been infected by virus A and they would, she would extract antibodies from that person. And then she would put those antibodies together with the virus. And it turns out that the antibodies, they're like little antigen pieces that connect all over to the virus and they coat the outside of the virus. And so when she would have these antibodies coating the virus, she was able to actually see the virus. So she developed this this technique, and this allowed her to diagnose various viral infections. Now, she became quite famous with this technique, and she was uh, lured back to to England. Uh, She went back to London, and she was working at St. Thomas Hospital Medical School, and there was a a doctor there, Dr. David Terrell. He sent her a flu-like virus, Back in 1964, it was la- it was labeled B814, it from a, it was from a sixth schoolboy in Surrey. They suspected that the B814 might be a new type of virus. Now she did take that specimen, and she was able to image it, and uh, what it looked like was it looked like a round ball with all these spikes coming out of it. And she's and she said, I remember seeing two other viruses that had that same look, and. One, one of the viruses was uh, from a bronchitis infection in chicken, and the second one was a hepatitis liver inf- inflammation in mice, and they both had that same look. And so they said, I, she did agree, I think we have come across a new class of viruses that have a particular look. Now, Almeda and Terrell, the guy that brought the sample, and Almeda's supervisor gathered together to wondering what they should name this new group of viruses. And when, and when they looked at that ball with all these spikes on the outside, all those spikes sort of looked like a halo in the picture. They said, so it's like the corona of the sun sort of surrounding it. And so they decided to call these coronaviruses because they reminded them of the sun's huh. corona. Now, of course, corona is just the Latin word for crown. So that's, so that's where it came from. And the thing is, she was given no credit for this discovery until very recently other people took credit for it all because the thing is women in science tended to be overlooked back in the day mm-hmm. and so but recently now she's been uh, you know recognized for her work on coronaviruses so very there you go
1: very good we have somebody who'd like to play our game okay. has, uh, the call center has uh, weeded through all of the callers today and we've picked one and that caller would be ken who is uh calling us from laurel maryland ken good morning how are you sir Okay, just fine. Good. Doc, go ahead and ask the question.
2: Early in in the show, I talked about Stephen Wolfram, the uh, founder of Wolfram Research. But when he was 14, he had already written three books. What was the subject of those three books? Uh, Particle physics. That is correct. That is correct. correct.
1: Very good, Ken. Excellent. Hang on just a second here. We're going to send you back to Andrew and he will take your information and we'll send the prize back out to you. Now, Doc, let me ask you this. Should you take a break or you want to just stay right here and keep on going?
2: Let's stay right here and okay. keep on going. That's good. That and, sounds good. And what Let's I'm going to do, my my detailed description of the uh, Wolfram's physics project, I'm going to delay until next week because it's quite a long it's segment. lengthy, yes. So I'll I'll talk about and I'll, we've had enough deep physics now anyway. So uh, let's just light. <laughs> let's just lighten up the lighten show. Lighten it up a
1: little bit. Okay. Let's
2: lighten up the show. Okay. Zoom has fixed their security problems. Oh, you, you know mean,
1: Zoom, lighten it up by talking about people getting uh, bombed on yeah, Zoom, Zoom
2: meetings. Zoom bomb. That's exactly that's exactly it. So Zoom is is working hard to fix it, all of its security glitches. You know they're running. They've got three hundred million users a day. And, uh, you know, a year ago, they only had 10 million users a day. So it's a 30-time increase in their usage. And they released a whole range of security features designed to make things safer. Now, one thing they made monitoring security a lot easier. Previously, a user, uh, like somebody that was run like a host of a meeting, they'd have to go through several different screens and layers to set all the the security settings. Now, and and as you would expect, most of these new users didn't set anything because they didn't know how to do it. So now they've got a single drop-down menu bar that's got security on it, and everything is in one place. So it's easy for a meeting host to regulate the security of the meeting. Now, they also wanted to address Zoom bombing. And what it is, now what they do, if somebody Zoom bombs a session, they have a security icon. The host will click it, and it will capture all the information relating to the Zoom bomber. And they'll send that information back to Zoom. Zoom will track that person. And if that person has a history of bad behavior, of bombing, Zoom bombing history, they'll block them. So they've gotten so Zoom is getting actively involved with going after the Zoom bombers. And they have all the information because you in order to Zoom bomb, you have to have a Zoom account. Mm-hmm. They're also upgrading the security of the video meetings, and they're going to do 256-bit AES encryption. It's still not technically end-to-end, but it's about as secure as you can get to transmit data. So, oh, and the last thing is people were criticizing Zoom for letting data that was on their system be stored in China. They had <laughs> data centers in China because a lot of the of their developers are Chinese. So now what they do… They, have, they allow you to see what locations your data might be stored in, and you can opt out of specific locations. So if you don't want any of your data in China, you just opt out of all the Chinese data center locations, and you're good to go. I think these four fixes that they did are timely and are going to give people a lot more confidence in Zoom. Now, happy birthday to the Hubble Space Telescope. If you can imagine, Hubble Space Telescope was launched by NASA in 1990. Man. 30 years later, 2020, it's still running strong. It's, it had its 30th anniversary on April 24th, and they are still showcasing images that are absolutely fabulous. The, I look at this one picture, and you, you just can Google Hubble Space Telescope. It's a picture of two nebulae two nebulas, the NGC 2014 and NGC 2020, hang it out in the large <laughs> Magellanic cloud, 163,000 light years away. Now, these two, one is the big, the uh, NGC 2014 is the large red one in the picture, and the NGC 2020 is the smaller blue one. They form what astronomers have nicknamed it the cosmic reef, because of the colorful, surreal, surreal appearance that looks like coral under the waves of the ocean now images like this of distant volatile regions of space where new stars are born out of masses of gases and it's allowed scientists to gather a massive amount of information since in the last 30 years Hubble has made over 1.4 million observations and the wealth of data about the cosmos with the wealth of data about the cosmos researchers have produced over 17,000 peer-reviewed papers. Even if the telescope were to shut down today, the amount of data that's already sent back to Earth will continue to yield new discoveries for decades. NASA estimates that the telescope could remain operational for another decade, and it will still be producing images like the Cosmic Reef. I'm telling you, this is one of the most successful NASA programs you can imagine. And you remember when they first launched it, it had... Serious problems
1: had trouble at the beginning.
2: What they did when they, um, formed the mirrors that, uh, that were used to focus the radiation, they did it on ground when there was gravity and they failed to take into account the fact that the curvature would slightly shift when gravity was no longer there. Mm -hmm. And so even though they were perfectly focused, on the ground in space everything was blurry <laughs> so I mean this was a huge I mean I, if you remember it, this was a huge yeah. black eye for NASA right in the beginning they had this you know multi-million dollar satellite it was useless because it, it was yep. it, it, it needed glasses so what they <laughs> did what they did is that they um, carefully calculated the impact of gravity on the curvature and they manufactured a corrective lens element, which was another mirror, a corrective lens element uh, on Earth to fix this. And the uh, the space shuttle folks had to go up there and do a fix on the Hubble satellite. And they they put that corrective optical element in there.
1: They sent my eye and, doctor up there.
2: And it was perfect. Yeah, they sent my eye doctor. And... And they fixed the focus of that telescope perfectly. That in and of itself was a major you know, engineering feat. Yeah. So now it's nice to have the celebration of the Hubble Space Telescope, one of, Nash, one of NASA's crowning achievements. Now, <clears throat> China has just launched a national blockchain. It's called the Blockchain-Based Network, BSN. It was officially launched May 25th in China. Now, BSN is going to be a critical part of the, of the national blockchain strategy that was announced by President Xi in late November 2019. Now, the commercial launch is scheduled for June 25th. Now, basically, BSN, the blockchain-based service network, will be the backbone infrastructure for massive interconnectivity throughout the mainland, from city governments to companies to individuals alike. It will allow... It will be a new protocol that will allow a, a more efficient way to share data, to share value in digital assets with complete transparency and trust with anybody who wants to be a, a, a node on the network. Now, blockchain technology is interesting. It's like an, it's, it's the first improvement in, say, ledger cards since the Medici's invented double entry accounting back in, uh, back in uh, Florence back in the 1800s and uh, basically what it does it's an open ledger and you ba- and you have individual individuals analyze this open ledger for inconsistencies and the, and as they analyze it they'll approve an additional element on the ledger they'll validate it so it's a decentralized record keeping system that is uh, quite innovative and uh, and it's a way to transfer value like if you want to send digital money You have to find a way to make certain that the digital sequence you're sending hasn't been spent before. So you have to find a way to validate it. So they are going to launch this. Now, cloud providers under BSN already include Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, Baidu Cloud, China Unicom, China Telecom. Now, BSN is going to allow companies ultra low cost access to the blockchain cloud and blockchain computing systems. So it means it's going to facilitate a lot of people to be able to make blockchain applications. And you can have access to the network for only $400 a year, $400 US a year. So that would allow any small business or individual to access critical tools for blockchain development. They are making a major push to leapfrog United States in blockchain technology. And this is a really an impressive feat. They've the government's developed a master top-down plan to connect all major cities in the country. They're going to roll out to over 200 cities over the next year and rapidly to all 451 prefecture-level cities thereafter. Chinese government sees blockchain is critical to the next generation of IT infrastructure. And uh, it's going to be built into their scalable cloud, which is all connected with, with 5G technology. So I think the U.S. has really got to... Watch what's going on in this whole area. Listen, we love your, we, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd also like you to check out the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Check out our programs on the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell me you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. And we'll see you next week.